that we may know him in the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. I believe that we do not know quite often the power that is available to us, that has been promised to us. And we walk around as believers without power because we do not truly believe that this power is available for us today. The power that we have available through Jesus Christ that was promised to us by him. Welcome to the Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. At the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, it was a theme of unity that Paul went into and told us that we were to be found standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the theme of unity was then exemplified through the humility of our exalted Savior Jesus Christ by his death, burial, and his resurrection to sit at the right hand of the Father. They taught a works-based salvation. And instead of faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, they taught faith plus works equals salvation. And so Paul's going to begin to close out the letter, but he's also going to shift themes because he really wants to speak to the people now and really speak to this issue of the Judaizers that was plaguing the church at that time. But it's a danger that we can all get caught up in. It may not be the same type of danger that Paul was talking to specifically as far as the Judaizers, but we can all get caught up in this danger in the life that we live in. In Colossians 2.11, it says that you are the circumcised, that you have been circumcised, made without hand by the putting off of the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That our circumcision is not made by hands, but it's made without hands. It's the work of God in our life. And when we attempt to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is a type of the circumcision of our flesh. When we try to have works, for salvation. It's a danger that we can all fall into. It's a trap. But Paul said the true circumcision are those who worship God. They are those who worship God in the spirit, that they rejoice in Christ Jesus, and they have no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to talk about himself, because he's talking basically to Gentile believers. It could have been a few Jews there at this church in Philippi, but 
probably the majority of them were Gentiles. We know from the account of the book of Acts that there was no synagogue in the city and that when he showed up for the first Saturday to preach, that there were no men who were there. It was only women. So it doesn't appear that there was any Jewish men and it took at least 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. So it seems that this was primarily a Gentile congregation. But he says, if you Gentiles want to have confidence in the flesh, he uses himself as an example in verses 4 through 6, saying, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so Paul lists out seven things to these Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, especially those who had fell into this traps of works for salvation, this trap of the teachings of the Judaizers. And he said to them, if you think you have confidence, here's my list. Here's my pedigree, if you, we could say. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Unlike the Gentiles who are proselytes to Judaism and circumcised as a part of that compliance with the Jewish law, Paul's parents had him circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed by the law. He was also of the stock of Israel. Paul was Israeli by birth and not conversion. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now he could trace his heritage back to Benjamin to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. And from that tribe came Israel's first king. And we know that King Saul failed. But as we read the history of the tribe, they were the tribe that accepted King David and his line. And they were faithful to David and not like the 10 northern tribes who separated and formed a whole new kingdom and new gods to worship. They remained faithful. In fact, if you look at your Bible maps, the division between the tribe of Judah and Benjamin cut right through Jerusalem. Some people believe that that border actually was on the temple line. I don't know if that's true or not. But the thought is that the tribe of Benjamin and Judah were nearest to the temple, nearest to God. They remained faithful to God the longest because of that. There's room for boasting there if Paul was going to boast in those things. He said that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And this has been debated exactly what this term means. Some believe that it means that he's repeating it again, that I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish type thing. But I went to the Jewish New Testament commentary on the Bible, and it states this, that Paul was saying, I am a Hebrew speaker with Hebrew-speaking parents. In other words, the Hebrew language was part of his native tongue. It was taught to him by his parents. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, I know that we get into the New Testament. We learn about the Pharisees there in the New Testament. They actually began this sect which means the separated one, some 400 years before the time of Christ. And they were back to the Bible, guys. They loved the Lord so much that they wanted to stay true to the Word of God. The danger was during the time of Moses up through the time of the Pharisees, they had went to their rabbis. They had these additional teachings, as I said earlier. 
and developed this course of 630 laws, do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. And they tediously tried to keep these things as they walked with the Lord. It became a works for salvation mentality. Just trying to better understand the teachings of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And Paul said in, in Acts 26, verses 4 and 5, he's given testimony of his life. He said, My manner of life from the youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And Paul said, man, if I was able to boast concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. He even sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In the first century, one of the greatest scholars that the Jews had, and we read of him in Scripture twice. Once we read of him in, I believe it's Acts chapter 5 there, where he spoke concerning the new sect of Christianity that was called the way at that time, but when the religious rulers were trying to deal with the apostles, it was Gamaliel who said, you guys need to watch it. Because if this is of God, you're going to be fighting against God. And so at that particular time, they backed off because of the advice of this man. And then in Acts chapter 22, Paul testified in verse 3 that he was not only a Jew, but he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. Not only persecuted the church in Acts 22.4, he said, I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, and concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul had done everything necessary for salvation through compliance, through the law, living the life of a Pharisee, believing that his works had made him blameless before God. But Paul would sum it up later in Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, saying, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I had advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He said, if you want to boast, here are seven examples from my life. And I doubt, first of all, they were Gentiles. So they weren't of the stock of Israel. They couldn't, they were circumcised, but not on the eighth day, not according to the law. And they had nothing that could stand up against Paul's pedigree. But it goes on in verse 7 and says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Everything that Paul had once held of value to him concerning the seven examples that he had given us here in verses four through six. Everything that had meant something great to him, he now counted it as lost. These were all part of his physical life, his spiritual life. They were part of his makeup, and he couldn't take them away. This was what made Paul Paul. But he said, they're no longer of value to me. They don't hold the value that they once held in my life because now Christ had become 
the object and the passion of his life. It's not that Paul stopped being Jewish. Many years ago, as I was raised in the Southern Baptist denomination, I was part of the youth work in Lake County at one time. I actually headed it up, whatever that accounts. But there was a guy who was over the state. His first name was Michael. I can't think of his last name right now. But he he was Jewish, and he became a believer, and, and he was introduced once. We were at this event, and they introduced him up at the podium, and they said, this is Michael so-and-so. He used to be a Jew. Now he's a Christian. And he came up, and he said, I'm still a Jew. That didn't change, but yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ now. Paul couldn't change his pedigree. He was still a Jew. He didn't change the fact that he had been circumcised on the eighth day, whether it was his, by birth or by the things that his parents had done for him or the things that he had acquired in life. All these things were of less value to him now. It's what the word means in the Greek. They didn't hold the value that perhaps they had once held for him because now the object and passion of his life was Jesus Christ. In verse 8, in the beginning of that verse, it said, Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And so not only the list of seven that he has given us, he expands it now to an innumerable list. He said, all things I count as loss in comparison to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, who is now the Lord of his life. In the context of this passage, the Greek word translated as excellence refers to being superior or surpassing all other things. In other words, the reality of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord surpassed everything else in Paul's life. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, Lily and I. Think about the passion that we have and our love toward one another. But you know, our whole married life, we've also understood that Christ is above our relationship with each other. That Christ comes first and then our marriage, and then our children and grandchildren, and, and the work that we do, and whether it's in ministry or secular work that we have, that Christ is Lord. And there's a lot of people who, Christ is something, but he is not truly Lord of their life. He's part of their life, but not really the driving force of their life. For Paul, it was things that were by his birth, or things that he acquired through education or placement in life. These he now counted all as loss. In Philippians 3.8 in the, it's the HCSB, the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible. I couldn't remember Holman. The translation, it read it this way. Moreover, that I also consider everything to be a loss in viewing of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything a loss of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And continues in verse 8 by saying, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, in verse 9, and be found in him. I suffer the loss of all things. He was in prison. He'd been in prison for at least four years. Truly, he has suffered the loss of all things. But he goes on to say, I count these things as rubbish. Now, that's a really nice way that our translators translated this Greek word. I looked through other Bible translations, and they, 
Instead of rubbish, they said filth, garbage, refuge, less than nothing. But it was the King James I think I favor the most. He says, I do count them as dung. Now, filth, garbage, refuge, less than nothing, or dung. John, I got this pile of filth I want you to clean up. No problem. I'll help you out, man. John, there's this pile of dung. Could you help me clean that up? Really? You want me to? You know dung is, right? That might get on me. We were at the farm yesterday picking up the grandkids, and somebody stepped in some all the way home. We knew that somebody had stepped in some. Don't touch your shoes. It's dung. I counted as dung. Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all things. He counted them as rubbish or as dung in order to gain Christ and to be found by him. It reminded me of Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 7, seek and you will find. In Hebrews eleven six, the scripture tells us, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if we are those who will seek, we diligently seek the Lord, we will be found by him. But we also, in the process of that, we have to come to this place where we are willing to suffer the loss of all things. But in the midst of that suffering, they can find Christ. We know that we can have a, a house fire and we can lose everything. And many who had said with uh, Hurricane Sandy, you hear people saying, at least we have our lives. At least we have our life. Things can be replaced. And quite often we get so wrapped up in our things, but it's true. Things can be replaced. Perhaps we lose these things of value that had once held value to us, but they can be replaced. Maybe not identically, but they can be replaced. But our relationship with Christ is unique above all other things. And it cannot be replaced by anything or anyone else or any other God or any other faith. It is in Christ, Jesus and Christ alone. He goes on to say, not only to be known by him in verse 10, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. And to be found by him, verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and the righteousness which is from God by faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Sufferings. Not the best way to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ to an American audience. Come to Jesus and you'll be able to suffer for your faith. For the last, uh, I would say, 50 years, there has been this teaching, come to Jesus and you will not suffer. Come to Jesus and you'll have everything that you ever dreamed of, everything that you've ever wanted. Come to Jesus and he'll fulfill your greatest and even smallest desires. Come to Jesus and you'll never be sick. Come to Jesus and you'll never taste death. And we know that all those things are not true, that we lose things, that we get sick, and that we all die unless the Lord comes and raptures us out, that I don't know anyone who has been on this earth, I think perhaps the oldest now, I think this year I heard is 120 years old, and that's quite a bit. But 
they're not going to get much further if that's the top age in this world. Their time will also come. But to know him and the power of his resurrection, not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, but faith that is in Christ. No longer did Paul seek a relationship with God that was based on his own righteousness, but now he sought a relationship with God that was based on his sons, God's only begotten son and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, something that we cannot obtain to in our own flesh, that we may know him in the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. I believe that we do not know quite often the power that is available to us, that has been promised to us, and we walk around as believers without power because we do not truly believe that this power is available for us today. It is available for us to operate in our lives, to go through sufferings and to hardship, and yet to know joy inexpressible, to, to know the peace that surpasses understanding, to know the smallest things that you do, that God can take them and multiply them as if he was still breaking the fish and the loaves and feeding thousands and saying to the Lord that, Lord, we don't have much strength. And he goes, I know, that's how I want you. Because in your weakness, I am made strong. The power that we have available through Jesus Christ that was promised to us by him, it was promised to us by Jesus himself in Acts 1.8 where he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This power that Paul told the early church to wait for I think one of our problems is that we're no longer waiting for the power of Christ to fill our lives. We, Yes, we are saved. Yes, when we're saved, the Spirit occupies our heart. But I believe that there is this further power that the Lord can give us, that he can work in us and through us. And I believe that we are operating without the power that we're trying to be a light without the electricity fueling us. And if you know that lights don't work well, if they don't have power. You know, Pastor Abraham, when he comes over and he shares about the ministry over in India, there are many different gods in India. And the danger that he sees is that people, when they accept Christ, is they accept Christ as one more God. Hey, we have 33,000 or 33 million gods, I believe is their account. So what's one more? But it's not one more. We just don't add Christ on as another thing in our life, but Christ becomes our life. Christ becomes our life. It goes on in verse 10, that we would know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was not only wanted to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, but he wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering. And again, suffering is not a popular thing in, in religion today. But throughout the Bible, if you read Scripture and you properly understand it and teach it, suffering is part of the church life. These are things that we go through. It is part of life. That, that is step number one. It is about the fellowship of believers coming together to, to encourage and to strengthen one another. But if we come together apart from the power of Jesus Christ, we come together without the power of the gospel. And I said many years ago, I confess to you of somebody leaving their bullets in their Bible and 
and I don't remember who the individual was, and they came and retrieved the Bible, but I think they only visited the church one time, and, and I believe the statement was in regards to my preaching, it lacks power, and, and I've never forgot that, nor do I want to forget that. Because if I think that the power is by learning, by knowledge, by my years of walking with the Lord, then I'm missing it. The power is in Christ Jesus. Now, we can glory in the things that aren't ours. It's because Christ's working through us and the power that's available to us through the Holy Spirit. And I believe we're guilty of operating not at full power, maybe without. If you're a believer, I believe the Spirit is in every believer. It tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit that he is the promise and the guarantee of our salvation until the day of Christ Jesus. So the Spirit is there. He's in us as believers. But are we operating in that full potential of his Spirit to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering, to be known by him, to be found by him, to have that power that is available to us? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would just instill it in our hearts today. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. Mm -hmm.